Okay, welcome to day 128 in our journey through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Judges chap, uh, chapter 7, verse 9, through the end of chapter 8, and then Proverbs chapter 11, verses 19 through 28, and finally John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. Okay, Judges 7, 9, this is uh, in the middle of the Gideon narrative. We saw that yesterday uh, the characterization that Gideon receives here is of a man who is um, called to be very bold and very mighty, but is constantly reluctant about it and hesitant, and then shows odd uh, odd bursts of boldness and strength, uh, primarily in his boldness in uh, tearing down the altar of his uh, of that his father had uh, of uh, built to Baal, and then also cutting down the Asherah that was next to it. But then, of course, the next morning he's nowhere to be found, and his dad has to go to bat for him. Um, today we see uh, that dynamic still playing out, where he is uh, just has these bursts of incredible boldness, uh, but then also a lot of. Um, a lot of fear and timidness. Uh, he's a very, he's a very unsteady character. He's somebody who is, um, who is, who is changing, and because of that, you can't really count on him for how he's going to act moment to moment. Uh, you're kind of stuck with the roll of the dice with him. So <clears throat> here he is now. Uh, the, the Midianites are encamped um, along with the people of the east, and you know everybody who's who's with them. And uh, they are uh, they are just this vast army, uh, this intimidating description that we get, uh, very similar to how they were initially described uh, in verse 12. They're in the valley, and they are uh, like locusts in abundance, and their camels are without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So just this massive army, and, um, and Gideonite is encouraged by the Lord to go down to the camp, and if you are afraid, right, this 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 thing of uh, this theme of fear again, it, it it keeps replaying in Gideon's uh, in Gideon's story. If you're afraid to go down, take your servant Pura with you. So they go down, and as they come to the outskirts of the camp, they hear two guys talking to each other. And here we have this almost comical coincidence going on. Right, like they just happen to be talking about this. The, the one just happens to be talking about this dream that he has about a barley can, uh, cake rolling into the camp, hitting a tent, and just turning this tent totally upside down just because it touches. I picture this barley cake like tumbleweed, you know, and and then it comes and it hits this this tent, and the tent falls, and the other one. Just as just as crazy of a coincidence of the telling of the story is this interpretation. Like, why would this guy even interpret it like this? How does he know about Gideon? But nevertheless, he's like, this is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Um, so, yeah, here you just, un it underscores the... Uh, the role of God in all this, how God is just kind of sovereignly directing all these events, and and doing so in such an extreme manner that you have this this very fantastic sounding um, uh, sounding thing happen when they come down uh, to to spy out the camp. 
Um, and then, then um, in addition to that, you, you also get a little bit of a, um, of a foretaste as to what actually is going to happen, what is how their defeat is going to take place. Uh, because it's going to be as a result not of not of like um, uh, military conquest, not of them like fighting and Gideon's soldiers just overcoming, but it's going to be primarily owing to the fear that the that the reputation of Yahweh has instilled in the hearts of the soldiers of Midian, and so. When they do that, when Gideon hears this, he is emboldened and he returns to his camp and he's like, all right, it's time to strike while the iron's hot. Grab your trumpets, grab pots, each of you, and put torches in your pots. And um, and and we're going to go down into the camp and just do what I do. When I blow the trumpet, I want you all to shout for Yahweh and for Gideon. Again, this is a very odd strategy and... And not only is he going to use this very bizarre um, approach, recall how the Lord had cut down the size of his army earlier um, where, where with the lapping of the, the water and uh, the returning of everybody who is fearful and trembling. And now um, Gideon himself um, displays this kind of confidence because he divides his 300 men into three companies. So now he's only got 100 and and re- recall how the emphasis with Midian has been on their the sheer size, the sheer number. So there's definitely this kind of comparison between the the strength of the forces of Midian and the strength of the forces of Gideon. Um, so they go down and uh, they do this, right? They 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 blow the trumpets, they smash the jars, they shout out a sword for Yahweh and a sword for Gideon. Now, just with the destruction of Jericho, I think we're to marvel a little bit here about uh, the this odd military approach um, and strategy towards battle. Although I also kind of suspect that perhaps one thing that might be going on here is that you have evidence that the people are already afraid. The Midianites are already afraid. It's at night, so they can't really see what's around them. And there's a hundred voices and trumpets that they suddenly hear um, out of the darkness and these these torches, these lights, right? And they have no idea how big the Israelite forces are, how big the forces of Gideon uh, Gideon is. And so they're not able to see. And so they so so the Lord actually sets every man's sword against his comrade and against all the armies. So the ones who are actually doing the killing, are the Midianites. They don't know who to hack at, and they're hacking at each other. And um, and so, uh, in typical judges' fashion, right, the, the foreign army is, is routed before them. They begin to flee, and Gideon begins to call out um, reinforcements from the tribes all around. Um, and, and, is, and also, in typical judges' fashion, um, the, there's a tip of the hat to everybody who responded now, you get some from the tribe of Naphtali, others from Asher, and others from Manasseh pursuing after Midian. Gideon then, apparently sometime after this, um, calls out reinforcements from Ephraim uh, in order to aid in, in apprehending two Midianite princes, Orev and Ze'ev. And um, they do this, and they kill both of them uh, at places that are then commemorated as where this took place. 
Now, the rock of Orev and the wine press of Ze'ev. And uh, the Ephraimites actually have a big problem with Gideon. Why didn't you call us out when you went out initially? So, like, why, we, why do we not get this bump to our reputation or perhaps even more noble attitude, right? Um, the ability to, to, to fight on behalf of God's people and the Lord. Why is it just now when you when you needed us um, that you called us out? So they've they've got a problem with it, and um, and Gideon soothes this uh, this anger that they have against him, this hostility they have against him, uh, with this this uh, little uh, proverbial type saying, um, "Is not the gleaning of Ephraim greater than the harvest of Gideon?" So. Uh, the idea here is that um, normally in the harvest, that's when you gather the majority of your produce, and then the gleaning is what you do when you go back over the field. And so, of course, the gleaning per, um, brings in a lot less than the harvest does. Um, so what they did as compared to gleaning and the victory that they had in being able to take out two, two high-ranking princes is, uh, is greater than what the um, uh, what Gideon's forces were able to take credit for, uh, to the extent that they can take credit, of course, the work here being God's, and they uh, this is successful. Ephraim's anger against Gideon subsides, <clears throat> and then uh, Gideon's three hundred men, now very exhausted, cross the Jordan in pursuit of the Midianite hordes or what is left of them, and uh, are refused provisions in two locations, first in the city of Sukkot, and then um, in Penuel. This is portrayed as a pretty shameful response on their, on their, on their part. Um, are Zevach and Tzalmunah already in your hand, that we should give bread to you? Um, probably the idea here is that uh, we're, not, we're not going to help you out until we know for certain that you're going to be victorious, because... Um, this is going to come back to bite us if uh, they actually end up winning and find that we gave you pr provisions. So Gideon threatens to get revenge on them or 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 exact give them what's coming to them as a result of this uh, on his way back. You know, when I get done with these guys, I'm going to come back for you, which in fact he does. They do capture the two kings, and uh, they find a young man of Sukkot who tells them exactly who the officials of Penuel are. And it says, with briars and thorns, he taught them a lesson, which, of course, is very ambiguous, but um, uh, it's not good what he does to them. And then he goes to Penuel and, uh, and kills um, a number of, puts a number of people in the city to the sword, a significant number. And he does it with Zebach and Tzalmunah um, captured and humiliated, right? And he's like, what now? You thought you were saying, Dude, are they yet in your hand? Well, now here I am, and I've got them. So where's your boasting now? Um, then he turns against the two kings and, um, and, and tells Jether, his firstborn, to kill them. And he refuses because uh, he's afraid. And then Zebah and Zalmunar are basically like, uh, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And remember, this is the, this is in line with how Gideon has been characterized. For like, they're like, what are, aren't? Why you you can't do it yourself? You're not brave enough to do it. You're not 
big enough of a man to do it is the idea. And remember all these these aspects of his characterization about, characterization about being a mighty man of valor, about going in this strength of yours, and um, and 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 yet Gideon is very um, uh, is very reluctant and and needs to keep testing God to make sure that he's going to do as he said, and um, so here his his attempt to have his his son do the dirty work for for him is interpreted um uh, or at least the the reader is reminded through the words of these through two kings that this is the um this is the character conflict within Gideon and uh, but he arises kills them and then strips the crescent ornaments um from their camels interestingly this is the first of two times that the that the fanciness of the collars that are on the camels is emphasized here. So we can already see some significant ways in which the judges are kind of taking a turn for the South here, right? Like, do we call Gideon a hero? Do we call Gideon, you know, truly a mighty man whom the Lord raised up and, um, and was victorious? Like, is this a, a Joshua? No, like there's a, there's a far cry from kind of this, this ideal, uh, Israelite warrior. Um, we have this man who's who's deeply conflicted and who does a, is doing a bunch of impulsive and um, and kind of difficult to explain things. Bursts of courage, um, which are often over the top, set against a more consistent background of uh, reluctance and timidity. Uh, but to kind of top things off. Now we see how things start to really get tragic with him. So first, in the aftermath, the men of Israel, and here Israel seems to be speaking, it's not just a tribal thing, right? This seems to be a pretty widespread contention. They want to make him king. Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. Notice that is like, go ahead and establish a dynasty. We're so thankful for what you did. We want you to to, to become a king over us. And Gideon, kind of in a George Washington-ish style, right, is like, refuses it. And he says, he, he asserts something that is something that is kind of like the mindset that everybody should have in Israel at this time. I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. So that your real king uh, is to be the Lord, and I'm not going to do it. Okay? Um, uh, so, on the one hand, he points them to to God. And yet, on the other hand, totally in line with the inconsistency of Gideon's character, he then ha- does this thing that is like, wait, I thought we wanted God to rule over us. I thought we wanted Yahweh to rule over us, right? And what does he do? He says, uh, give me the earrings uh, freely from your spoil. And at first you're like, all right, this looks like a good thing, a free will offering to the Lord. And uh, he lays it out on this on this fancy cloak, and it's a lot. It's 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 one thousand seven hundred shekels of gold, um, and then we have the note of the pendants that were on the necks of their camels, and um, and then Gideon. What does he do? He makes an ephod with it, and puts it in the city of Ophrah. Now we're not exactly sure what is meant by ephod. This is some kind of religious implement. This is not. The word is also used to describe a thing that the priest wore, right? This is probably not that. It's probably not like a wearable article of uh, like religious ornamentation. This is 
this is some kind of cultic instrument akin to an altar or the Asherah tree. Um, but whatever is meant by this, he puts it in this in his home city, and it says all Israel hoard after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So he pays lip service to the idea that God should reign as king, that Yahweh should reign as king, but then he makes this 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 object of worship that ends up turning the people away from the Lord. And uh, Midian, in fact, is subdued as a result, nevertheless, and the land has rest for 40 years. Then in the epilogue, which is the account of his death, we learn that even though that Gideon has refused kingship, he's kind of living like a king, right? He's got 70 sons from a bunch of different wives, and then apparently additional sons, uh, and one in particular is highlighted, who will be the next judge, um, who is a son of a concubine, not, not a full wife, and he names him Abimelech, and um, often pronounced Abimelech, um, which is an... If you, if your contention is, I will not rule over you and your sons and my sons will not rule over you, but Yahweh will rule over you, then it's weird that you name your son, my father is king, because that is in fact what Abimelech means. Um, so again, this conf the, the main aspect of Gideon's character is deeply conflicted, fickle, does one thing and then that that is that seems to characterize him one way and then impulsively swings and does another thing that seems to uh, align with a uh, you know the polar opposite of how he was and that's the story of Gideon okay let's take a look now at uh, the proverbs for today so this is proverbs chapter 11 verses 19 through 28 um, we are uh, they're starting to get pretty random here um, so uh, there, there's only some value, I think, in trying to figure out um, co cohesion between one proverb and another. Some of them just seem to be kind of thrown together because it is a collection of sayings. Um, but you've got a, a few here um, uh, in, in verse 19, 21, and 23. You've got um, uh, the, uh, this, this, uh, something of a recurring theme of a reward for righteousness, that, those, that living a righteous life in general... Um, will will be rewarding to you, whereas pursuing evil uh, is is uh, your your end will be will be unfavorable, right? You will not go unpunished. You will die. Um, you will end in wrath. Your life will end in wrath. So um, even though you don't see it now where you are, the end of this path is either going to be extreme blessing or extreme. Uh, sorrow and regret. Uh, then you have a, a fairly um, famous one in um, a fairly well-known proverb in verse 22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. That one almost uh, describes itself, right? That, that a woman who acts foolishly, even if she's beautiful, all her beauty then is just I don't know. It's like a it's like a golden ring in a pig's snout, right? Like it's it is beautiful, but um, but it adorns something that that beauty is adorning something that is disgusting, that is horrible, and that, that you know nobody wants. 
um, keep in mind also that in in Israelite law, pigs are unclean animals, so that even even less desirable than 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 it might be in our culture. Then you have a couple that apparently deal with uh, the idea of um, of generosity, of being being generous. So in twenty four, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Um, kind of the opposite of what human wisdom is, right? But the idea that the generous person is the one who actually grows richer, whereas the one who is stingy, the one who closes his hand to the poor, um, actually ends up with less in the end. Um, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. The one who waters will himself be watered. Okay, very similar idea there. But notice here that unlike unlike verse 24, that is not antithetical parallelism where you have the opposites, right? One who gives freely and the one who withholds. Here, here you have uh, the two building upon one another. So whoever brings blessing and the one who waters, okay? So it's, it's not opposites. It's the same. It's just saying it in a different way, maybe, maybe building upon the first line. Uh, same thing, the people curse him who holds back grain, right? So the person who's not generous, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Here, it's not even that they're not giving away, they're selling it, right? But the focus is on, you know, don't be a hoarder. This is how people look on those who hoard what they have and um, don't engage in uh, commerce and and the buying and selling, which, of course, is beneficial to everybody. Um, And um, verse 27, whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. This is interesting, right? Because... Both good and evil in this proverb are portrayed as things that you go looking for and uh, that, that you put effort into finding. And, of course, uh, we can all relate to what this looks like. Of course, you need to seek good, but you can also, you also, uh, there are those who go searching. We can relate to going searching for evil, right? You, you want to do something that you know you shouldn't do, that you know is wicked, and you put effort into making that happen, Um Many different things can be plugged into that kind of scenario. Then in verse 28, you have the contrast between the one who trusts trusts in his own riches and and the one who is righteous. Okay, so the the, the one who um, pursues righteousness versus the one who thinks that they could just do whatever they want because they have money, because their money will deliver them. And then finally, um, whoever troubles his own household, so this is a very much a family-oriented thing, Right. Whoever brings trouble upon his own household, we might say, will inherit the wind and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. Um, The idea of inheriting the wind is the wind is something that is nothingness. Right. It's you try to grab it. You can't do anything with it. It's 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 empty. It's emptiness. You feel it. But that's about all. Right. And that's what you inherit. The one who troubles his own household. Okay, let's go over to our reading from the Gospel of John now. We're in John chapter 5. Uh, we're beginning in verse 30. This is the middle of, of Jesus' response to, um, uh, to, the, to the religious leaders uh, who are criticizing him for, number one, working on the Sabbath, and number two, quote, making himself equal to God. And we saw a bunch of things yesterday where Jesus kind of just drills that one deeper, right? He's just digging himself into somewhat of a deeper hole, talking about how his 
will and the fathers are perfectly aligned how um how he is the one who will be who will be the judge of the world how as the father will raise the dead on the last day so the son is giving life now to those whom he will so jesus is not backing away from that um and so now he continues, and he begins with the, um, in verse 30, with this idea again of his will perfectly aligning with the Father. I could do nothing on my own. Uh, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I think the judgment he's talking about here is basically uh, not not like judgment on the last day, but rather Jesus calling things for what they are, right? The, the judgment he is now, judgments he is now making in his ministry, what he is saying, what he is teaching, okay, those things he is able to say uh, because he is seeking not his own will, but the will of him who sent, sent him. Um, then he starts talking about, um, you know, of course, well, why? Why should we believe who you are? And the answer, at least one of the big um answers in the Gospel of John um, as to why should we believe is testimony. Um, Who is bearing witness? And so Jesus begins the thought where he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What this probably reflects is the the command from the law where two or three witnesses are, are required. Um, there's there's a high likelihood that Jesus might be alluding to that, where like if I'm the only one who's bearing witness about myself, my my witness will not be deemed true by you, which is why then he goes on to talk about the others who bear witness about him, and it's possible depending on how what you understand him to be saying about John the Baptizer, uh, it's possible to see those as three witnesses indeed. Um, but um, but but even if he's not alluding to that um, aspect, that command from the law, that command from Deuteronomy, um, to have two or three witnesses, at the very least, he's he's saying, don't just take it on my word, right? Like, I'm telling you stuff, and just the fact that I'm saying things, okay, you don't, you've got, you're, you're being given more to go on than just that. Um, so first, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. There, I think he's talking about the Father, and then I think he switches to John. Okay, so he alludes to the Father. Remember how I said in the Gospel of John, Jesus' words often ping-pong back and forth. So I think there he alludes to the Father, and then he goes, Now as for you, you sent to John. Remember, they sent the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem to question him in in chapter 1, and he has borne witness to the truth, and, um, but... uh, not that, but then Jesus says, "Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved." He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice in a while for a while in his light. So, in other words, you um, you regarded John very highly. You regarded what he was doing as somewhat legitimate. You were curious about it, right? Like you acknowledged truthfulness in what he was doing, um, and so you know, you believed him, he's the, and he bears, and of course the implication is he bore witness about me, so you should at least already be thinking that, uh, that, that something very important is happening in me, in Jesus. Um, but the testimony that I have, he goes on to say, is greater than that of John, 
Okay, so if you're willing to entertain John, think about this. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, right, we're in the midst of the book of signs, those works bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Remember the role of signs, they point beyond themselves. Um, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness uh, about me. Uh, now, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you don't have your his word abiding in you because you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Okay, so you're not he, you're not really able to hear God. God bears the Father bears witness about me, but you don't really hear him because you're not hearing me. Okay, again, this idea that you do not honor God, you cannot truly worship God now unless you are coming through Jesus, unless Jesus is there in the equation. Um, you search the scriptures, he tells them, right? These are experts in the scriptures, because you think that in them you have you have life. But where in the Gospel of John does life come from? It comes from Jesus, right? Um, and, and so you search the scriptures, and the scriptures, there's your other witness, right? They bear witness about me. Okay, so properly understood, they point to me. Of course, he doesn't go into here how they do that, and I, I hope that as we study the... the uh, uh, Old Testament scriptures together, um, that that picture will become more and more clear for you um, about how the, the scriptures bear witness to Jesus. Um, but yeah, the, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, right? Um, so you think that the, that the scriptures have life in them, but they bear witness to me, and yet here you are accusing me, uh, thinking about killing me, um, when I'm the one who can actually give you life, and that's what the scriptures are telling you, but you're not hearing them. Uh, I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you don't have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So, um, right, you receive you. You, you hear out one another, you give glory to one another, you hold one another in high regard on much less than I am showing you. I'm showing you signs. The scriptures are bearing witness about me. The Father is bearing witness about me. John the Baptist, whom you acknowledge, bears witness about me. Yet you're not listening. You're yet you have less regard for me and my teaching than you have for each other's teaching. Right? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you uh, to the Father, right? Jesus is judge. He's not prosecuting attorney, okay? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope, okay? So how does Moses accuse? Again, the, more, the greater experts they are, the more accountable they are for seeing the things in, in, in the law that point to Jesus, um, uh, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Uh, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Um, so super convicting words uh, geared towards the Jewish religious leaders there. Uh, Jesus is not pulling any punch, uh, punches. He's speaking fairly clearly about who he is, although notice the, the, the cryptic element is not totally removed. Um, there's still some mystery in what he's saying here. Um, and again, I would just underscore the idea when, when we w the idea of, of the scriptures bearing witness to him and and if you're reading the Old Testament the correct way or the Hebrew Bible, if you like the correct way, then you see Jesus in it. Um, 
there are questions, of course, that arise from that, such as, well, how? Um, are we supposed to allegorize things? Is, is, is that it? That would spin the approach of some. So we're like, this stands for the cross, this stands for the church, this stands for... Um, I don't think so. Um, and in general, in case I haven't made it clear, my approach to, to, to this, to, to, um, uh, to, to use another's phrase, to see Jesus in all of Scripture, is to kind of trace the main plot line um, through the Old Testament and see how that leads you ex- directly to Jesus, right? We've seen this promise of ultimate defeat of, of, of the evil one and of his works, We've seen that this will come at the hands of a, an offspring of the woman, um, an individual. We've seen that this will be through the family of Abraham, um, that there will be kings that come from the family of Abraham. Um, we've seen the way in which God starts this in Israel, but there's a serious deficiency there because of Israel's sins and Israel's failings. And so kind of needs to be someone who's above those, right? And um, who's, abo- who's above those things, um, who's almost operating on a different wavelength. Uh, we've seen the provision for uh, dealing with the people's sins so that God can dwell in the midst of his people, and yet there's something very anticlimactic about that. Is this really what is restoring what was lost in the garden? Is this really God's plan um, to bless all the nations of the earth. How is this going to happen? And and so just this, e- even today in Gideon, right? Like, like they want a king. God's people want a king. And yet they're refusing to make it God, <laughs> right? They're refusing for it to be God. And, and so they're given these human rulers, all of whom are going to fail them. It's not as if, if, any, of, if any of us were in the position to rule God's people, we'd do any better. So there's this anticipation that's building up, this thing that, uh, that, that, that I think one who reads the Hebrew scriptures with an open mind, um, I think we see these things, and that by the time we are through with the Old Testament, not through with it because we'll read it again, but right by the time we've gotten to the final page of Malachi, we understand that um, something greater is coming and we get a good idea of a lot of that that promise entails as will will things that will unfold as we as we read through the Old Testament together. Um, but yeah, again, I would just underscore, I think the main idea here is that it's not hidden, okay? The main plot line of the Old Testament leads you straight to Jesus by the time you're by the time you're through with it. So stick with me. Um, I thank you for doing so, so far, and um, hopefully it will be as rewarding for you to listen to as it is for me to articulate here. And um, until tomorrow, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.